Happy Friday and Merry Christmas. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here bringing you this week's news roundup. This week, our team talks through the Biden administration suing Texas over redistricting, the Attorney General weighing in on gender modification procedures for minors, four Texas Democrats taking a stance opposite of the White House, recent border rescues by Customs and Border Protection agents, some Texas school mask mandates remaining, state officials wrestling with the strings attached to federal coronavirus money, a San Antonio school district voluntarily removing hundreds of controversial books from its library, nearly $700,000 worth of drugs seized by border agents, a new version of an annual defense bill making its way through D.C., and Dan Crenshaw defending a vaccine database vote. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. We are so glad you tuned in today. Well, howdy folks, Mackenzie Taylor here with Daniel Friend, Hayden Sparks, Isaiah Mitchell, and Brad Johnson on another edition of the Texans Weekly Roundup Podcast. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing good. Anything exciting happening at the office today that our listeners need to know about? Um, Well, we're having an interesting podcast uh, experiment here. Yes, explain this. So we normally are all together in the same room. And on, on some occasions, we do remote podcasts. This time, we're doing something a little bit different and doing a bit of a hybrid since uh, <laughs> Mac could not be here in the office today. So we're mixing it up a little bit. Yeah. Just making it a little bit different. We got to keep it, you know, we got to stay on our toes, be ready for anything. The cool guys really are in the podcast room. Oh. You're remote. Yeah. But the advantage is that with a little four track recorder, now each of us can have a microphone because despite the breadth of our mighty media empire, we, we have four microphones and five podcasters. So and usually Isaiah and Hayden are basically switching microphones across right. the room. The yeah. Fighting podcast. to the death for mm-hmm. the chance to speak into the mic. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but not today. At any given point, you will have the ability to speak freely. Well, gentlemen, welcome to the, to the club. And mainly I just wanted to see if Daniel could figure out this, uh, you know, technical puzzle and he did so with ease and so it was actually kind of boring but on that note we're going to go ahead and get into our news for the week daniel let's start with you um the biden administration is suing the state of texas over some redistricting plans what are the main arguments being waged so the main arguments in this redistricting lawsuit sound uh extremely similar to all the other arguments that have been uh, brought up by uh, different voting rights organizations that have already sued the state of Texas over the redistricting maps. Uh, There's not really a lot of new content here. Uh, Like those other organizations, the Department of Justice under the Biden administration uh, filed a complaint alleging that Texas is violating Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act uh, by, quote, creating redistricting plans that deny or abridge the rights of Latino and black voters to vote on account of their race, color, or membership in a language minority group. Uh, So that is what Attorney General Merrick Garland said at a press conference on Monday uh, when he announced this lawsuit. Um, So it's nothing too too different from the uh, other lawsuits that are pending uh, in courts already. Uh, This is just a little bit different in that it's actually coming from the U.S. government itself and not just uh, some organization that are usually the ones that carry these lawsuits. Right. Are there specific districts that are being criticized? So there's a few different uh, districts that are being criticized. The two maps in question are the congressional map and the state house map. 
Uh, for the congressional map, uh, the big district that they really hone in on uh, is Texas. Uh, Texas's 23rd congressional district out in West Texas. Uh, this is currently held by Representative Tony Gonzalez. It stretches from El Paso to San Antonio. Uh, it's definitely, I think, one of Texas's biggest uh, congressional districts. It might actually be one of the biggest districts in the country. Um, but it is uh, a wide swath of land. And uh, there were some changes made. It was a very competitive district in previous cycles. And uh, with the redistricting, it's shifted a little bit partisan-wise to be more favorable toward Republicans. Uh, part of that uh, comes with also shifting the number of Latinos in the district down slightly. But it is still a Latino-majority district. Um, but the Department of Justice is still arguing that uh, essentially – they're uh, picking and choosing their Latino voters to make it uh, harder for Latinos to have their pick. Um, so it's an, an interesting argument. We'll see how it goes. Uh, the other two areas, uh, there's not really a specific district that they zone in on, but there's two other areas of the state that they say there should be more another minority group, uh, a Latino district or a black district in the DFW area or Harris County areas. Uh, that's also another argument that we've seen from previous lawsuits. Uh, so it's something that the courts are already considering uh, but that is being reiterated here. Uh, with the state house map, uh, there are really three different districts that they zone in on again. And these are also, uh, interesting enough, they're very battleground uh, districts. Uh, two of them have actually been picked up by Republicans in the past few months. Uh, the first one being House District 118 in San Antonio, which uh, Representative John Lujan just won a special election there. Uh, a couple months ago, and then uh, House District 31 in South Texas, which is held by Representative Ryan Guillen, who just switched his party affiliation from being a Democrat to being a Republican. Um, now, both of these districts were fairly competitive in previous cycles, and then the redistricting uh, proposals that went through and were signed into law actually shifted their district back toward Republicans uh, to be a little bit safer for Republicans to hold on to those seats now. Um, and the third district uh, that's kind of focused in on the lawsuit is House District 76, which is – it used to be in El Paso uh, County, and I guess technically it, it still currently is. Um, but under the new map, that district has been pulled out of El Paso and moved over to Fort Bend. Uh, that change happened because the population growth in El Paso did not – uh, match the population growth with the rest of the state. And so El Paso needed to lose some representation. And so the way that they did that was they moved uh, one of the districts into a more populous county uh, that's rapidly growing. So the new district of HD76 is still uh, a minority district, um, uh, minority coalition district. There's about, I think, 31% uh, Asian. And then there's uh, about 25 to 30% with the other uh, races that the state breaks it down in as well. Um, but those are kind of the areas that they make similar arguments. The DOJ makes similar arguments as the uh, as they did with the congressional map. Um, but those are the, the areas of the state that they focus on. Got it. Now, were there any districts that we expected to be part of this, to be cited, to be brought forth or criticized that were not? Yeah, I would say that the there are some notable absences here. Uh, the first one, of course, is there's nothing about the Senate map, the state Senate map that was passed. Uh, that one has been a little bit controversial uh, just over Senate District 10, uh, which was challenged in a previous in 2000 after the 2010 census uh, with the changes that the state legislature attempted to make then um, that were actually struck back by courts. Uh, there's been similar arguments that have been made this time um, but the Department of Justice didn't even touch on that at all. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. 
Then the other interesting area that was absent were the changes that were made in House District 37 and House District 38, which is down in Cameron County. Uh, 37 is the district that Republicans also changed to kind of make that be a, a swing district, potentially being picked up by a Republican. Um, that's kind of their aim that they're going with with that. Yeah, but that was not mentioned in the lawsuit as well, which was also an interesting absence. Got it. Now talk to us about the timeline for this case. What does that look like, even just in terms of the acceptance of the maps in the primary elections? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the maps were already signed into law. And so uh, they were signed into law. There's also a bill that set the filing deadline and the primary election dates to basically be what they originally were slated to be. So the filing period for candidates is already going to end on December 13th. Um, so in order for this case to be successful, the courts have to move pretty fast on this. Um, and so far with these redistricting lawsuits, uh, the courts have been moving quite slowly. They haven't uh, really taken fast action um, in you know issuing any kind of injunction to halt uh, the process of this filing period um, and, you know, and, potentially delay the primary elections, which is slated for March 1st. Um, so we'll see if they, what the courts do, it's up in the air, but I expect that if something is going to happen, it needs to happen pretty quickly in order to, you know, provide clarity as far as the election and for candidates to know when they can file and what district they can actually file in. Certainly. Well, Daniel, thanks for breaking that down for us. Isaiah, we're going to come to you now. For some time, Texas Republicans, many of them at least, have been attempting to ban child gender modification. And now the attorney general broke his silence on this topic. What did he have to say and what kind of moves were made? So Ken Paxton sent a letter to the, uh, the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services. And that's the department in charge of the foster care system and investigating child abuse and neglect. And in his letter, he said, to be clear, this is his words, I trust that DFPS is investigating and taking all appropriate actions against child abuse that may occur through gender reassignment surgery, chemical or surgical castration, puberty blockers, or any other procedure as it relates to children. So that's in the letter that he sent to DFPS. In other words, in layman's terms, um, strongly suggesting or telling them that they already have the duty to investigate at least some of these procedures as child abuse. Got it. Now talk to us about the background of this letter. So the background is what makes this baffling. I was fixing to say the background is we need to understand it, but it's, it's the opposite. It just confuses you more. Makes it more complicated. Yeah. So last week um, there was a series of interviews um, that left the governor, the attorney general, and a member of the legislature kind of in a finger-pointing triangle over the immobility of proposals to ban child gender modification. So they these were proposed in the legislature, and, and they failed. Uh, so afterwards, Governor Abbott sent a letter to the DFPS attempting to convince them to treat actual genital surgeries, gonadectomies, as abuse when performed on children. And the DFPS agreed and said in a pretty quickly returned response, that they would investigate those procedures as child abuse and treat them as such. And so afterwards, there are a couple of lawmakers, Brian Slayton and Matt Kraus, and they were not alone, but these are the ones that actually sent communication along these lines that inquired whether or not the same could be said for other procedures. And so what this new action was by the DFPS was saying that under the existing law, the existing definition of child abuse, 
unchanged that gonadectomies, these actual genital surgeries, would count as child abuse. And Brian Slayton, the state rep, asked them, can the same be said for mastectomies or other cosmetic surgeries or puberty blockers or counseling as well? And state rep Matt Krause sent a similar request to the attorney general. And that was an official opinion request, meaning that the attorney general receives that from another elected official, and he's got 180 days for his office to digest that and return a legal opinion. Um, in this case, interpreting the existing child abuse law and whether or not that it can include puberty blockers. So that's what's been anticipated. And last week, the governor said that um, there could be no action, that he had another letter prepared by the, for the DFPS that would include puberty blockers and abuse, but he's waiting on Ken Paxton to release that opinion as a response to Matt Krause. And Ken Paxton, the next day, in an interview on the same radio show, said that after he received this opinion, he was waiting on the legislature before issuing his opinion. And then I spoke to Matt Krause, and he said that he was expecting Ken Paxton to issue his opinion <laughs> in hopes that it would buoy the legislative efforts, which could not continue in the regular session because they weren't on the, the special se uh, excuse me, on the special session because they weren't on the agenda. So there's a, a triangle of blame going on here. And this letter they just sent to the DFPS seems to already assume that the basic question of Krause's opinion request is resolved, even though he has not resolved it yet. My gosh, it is so complicated for so many reasons. Let's elabor elaborate a little bit on the specific legislative proposals that we've talked about throughout the year that the legislature came forward and, you know, basically offered as a solution to these problems. Sure. So during the regular legislature, which means uh, every two years, uh, the legislature can act on whatever they want to act on. You can file bills on whatever they can pass out, whatever. And this topic, banning child gender modification is putatively a popular one among Republicans since it's a party priority. So there were a number of bills that were filed to ban these procedures and they had slightly different definitions and mainly differed on by what means they would ban these procedures. There were some that would classify them as child abuse and there are others like Matt Krause's bill that would make them a prohibited practice for doctors, meaning that if a doctor cares at these procedures, administers puberty blockers, performs a gonadectomy or whatever for the purpose of gender transition, then the medical board would have been able to revoke their license. That was Krause's bill in a nutshell. And I mentioned his bill because it got the farthest out of all of these several bills. All of them wound up in the House Public Health Committee, chaired by Representative Stephanie Click, and only Krause's passed through. The rest of them just languished there without passage or action. But after Krause's passed through, um, the Calendars Committee, chaired by uh, Representative Dustin Burroughs, set it too low on the House's agenda to receive a vote. So there are some of these bills that came from the Senate, and they got voted out of the full chamber there. But none of these bills got a vote on the House floor. Krause's came the closest, but they had something like two or 300 bills in front of them that they had to address. And so it was just set too low to receive a vote. At that time got of the it. regular legislature, um, he had, I want to say somewhere between 30 and 50 co-authors, and he filed these bills again in each of the three special sessions that followed. And in the second one, he got over 70 co-authors, including Stephanie Click, Dustin Burroughs, and Tom Oliverson, who rejected an amendment by Brian Slayton that would have... <laughs> I won't get into all that background. That's, that's more <laughs> specific. Anyway, important thing to know is that the legislature mustered majority support for this, but only once passage became impossible because Absolutely. it wasn't on the special session agenda.
Very, very good. Well, Isaiah, thank you for covering that for us from start till now. This has been quite a subject this year in the legislature. Um, Brad, let's move on. Some Texas Democrats took a position opposite of the White House this week. Tell us about that. Yeah, so four members of the Texas Democratic delegation in Congress uh, penned a letter, a joint letter, uh, opposing something that the Biden administration has done. Those members were Veronica Escobar, Henry Cuellar, Mark V.C., and Philemon Vela. So the issue was the letter itself asked the Biden administration and um, CMS and, and the Department of Health and Human Services to uh, reinstate funding for certain categories of uncompensated health care. Um, this is under the Medicaid program. And um, it, uh, right now you have a lot of hospitals that are not receiving this funding because of what the, um, the Biden administration did earlier this year in retroactively rescinding approval of Texas's Medicaid Section 11. One five waiver. It's a very complicated. Basically, it boils down to uh, this program allows um, hospitals and especially rural ones, because those are ones that are more reliant on this kind of funding, uh, to get paid through the Medicaid program, i.e., federal dollars. Um, and that's one way that they balance their books. Uh, it, a lot of people viewed this as most Republicans viewed this as a push by the federal government to try and get Texas to expand Medicaid, which of course it hasn't in um, the now nine years that it's been an option since Obamacare and since states first started expanding Medicaid. And so um, there's a fight right now. It's in, it's in the courts. We don't know how it's going to end up. Um, but we, you know, it's, it's notable to see four members of the, uh, the 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 Democratic Party kind of pushing back against the person the head of it, and it's not just you know the conservative moderates. Yes, you have Henry Cuellar and Philemon Vela who are more conservative Democrats in among the Texas delegation. We also have Veronica es Escobar and Mark Vesey is also fairly progressive. Escobar especially is very progressive. So um, you, you, I think what this shows is there's a lot of um, tightening of the purse strings on local hospitals and other entity healthcare entities in these um, you know, poor communities, especially that rely on on Medicaid um, Medicaid reimbursements for uncompensated care. So something to watch. I'm not sure how much it's going to move the needle. Uh, I think you know by far the more substantive update will be whenever. A court makes a decision on this, but um, we, you know, we'll see what happens. And it's certainly notable to see uh, kind of a, a moving away from from the party line on this issue by a few by a handful of uh, of Democrats. Certainly, thank you, Bradley Hayden. Let's talk about the border. Talk to us about some recent rescues by Custom and Border Protection agents. Well, uh, there have been a couple of incidents lately that are notable one of which involved a two-year-old child who was separated with his mother and I believe a sibling. The Customs and Border Protection Agency said that that a mother and two children were separated. It didn't specify the whether or not the two children were siblings or cousins or how they were related, but it did say they were a family unit. And about a week ago, they were separated from a group that was illegally crossing into the Laredo sector and uh, ended up 
by themselves and the and the toddler was suffering from dehydration. So Customs and Border Protection EMTs rescued that child and ultimately uh, transferred him to the custody of the city of Laredo medical personnel uh, who treated uh, him for his injuries and condition. And that highlights, and that's just one example of something that is not uh, uncommon for uh, children, unaccompanied children or family units, uh, illegal uh, immigrants in general to be injured or suffer uh, from the elements when they're uh, really traversing the the wilderness down there in South Texas, crossing illegally um, between points at ports of entry. It's an, an extremely dangerous uh, CBP highlights over and over again uh, that it's one of the most serious risks uh, associated with illegal immigration is the risk to human life and health. Um uh, of the people who are, in fact, crossing illegally. Uh, and then, of course, when uh, border agents are uh, t- tending to that, they're unable to take care of their enforcement duties uh, to the degree that uh, they need to in order to prevent further smuggling and further illegal crossings. Uh, but th- there is another incident um, that I, I will mention that involved a, a Guatemalan child uh, who was abandoned by his mother, Uh, on the American side of the Rio Grande. And he was identified by the Guatemalan consulate as a missing juvenile migrant is the phrase that uh, CBP used. He was pictured uh, in documents that were provided to American authorities. And uh, they, the Guatemalan consulate in fact provided an approximate location. And once they were, able to find this juvenile whose age was not given in the CBP press release. They actually found with him documents that contained a false name and a false date of birth. Again, going to some of the fraudulent activities that are associated with illegal immigration. They were able to yeah. unite that child with, uh, with his mother. Um, and so thankfully there were happy endings on, on both of those fronts. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how many, let's talk big picture here. How many unaccompanied children and family units have been encountered in Texas sectors lately? It's important to remember that uh, while enforcement actions are an important piece of the puzzle, uh, they do not reflect the total picture, which would include people who are evading custody and people who are undetectable for whatever reason, especially because of the humanitarian piece that I mentioned. And there are reports of encounters uh, with family units and unaccompanied children, but we we do have to remember that that doesn't include uh, the entire picture. So that I I just wanted to mention that before I I give this, uh, these numbers, but uh, CBP did note that there was a 98% increase um, in encounters with unaccompanied children in the Del Rio sector uh, in October, as compared to October in 2020. According to uh, the statistics that were provided by CBP for October, uh, which are current as of November 3rd, those are the latest numbers that they provided, uh, there was a combined 9,827 uh, encounters with unaccompanied minors in Texas border patrol sectors. So we're talking about from El Paso to the Rio Grande Valley. And then um, there were 804 encounters uh, 
in the Del Rio sector and 320 in the Laredo sector. And I mentioned those sectors because those are the ones that uh, these incidents took place in. And so they're just good examples. Uh, but in October, there were more than 26,000 uh, apprehensions of individuals who are part of a family unit. Um, and so while a majority who come across, I believe, still are single adults, the family units and the unaccompanied children are an important uh, consideration uh, when looking at illegal immigration. For sure. Well, Hayden, thank you for breaking that down for us. Important to remember that these are people's lives and policy affects their lives um, very intimately. So thank you for that. Isaiah, let's talk about Texas school mask mandates. First, before we get into all this, remind us what the Fifth Circuit ordered regarding mask mandates in Texas. Yeah. So just as a, a brief refresher, um, these federal cases go to district court, then an appellate court, which in Texas goes to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, then if they'll take it, the Supreme Court. So the district judge, the first one in, in the process, had issued an injunction against Governor Abbott's prohibition on school mask mandates. And specifically, uh, he enjoined Ken Paxton from suing to enforce the mask mandate. And if you heard me hesitating before the use of the word enforce, that's because that's kind of central to Paxton's argument in the court. And there's, there's a lot of argument over who's actually enforcing it. And that matters for this injunction. So the Fifth Circuit overturned this injunction, restoring Ken Paxton's ability to sue and, and the state's ability to enforce this mandate. Paxton's lawsuit seemed to be the only tool that the state has in the toolbox to enforce this mandate. There is the Texas Education Agency, which oversees you know, charter schools and school districts in Texas. And they have issued guidance from time to time uh, telling schools to follow this executive order banning mask mandates. But they haven't actually, you know, engaged in any disciplinary action. So far, the only adverse action that school districts receive for mandating masks is a lawsuit from Ken Paxton. Yeah. Okay. So then let's talk about what schools are requiring masks still. Right. So after the Fifth Circuit overturned this injunction, said that the state can enforce this mask mandate, um, in general, the same schools that had already been requiring masks just kept those requirements for the most part. So, for example, Austin ISD, Houston ISD, and Dallas ISD will all continue to enforce their mask requirements. And generally, if they put out statements to accompany this decision, um, they argued overall that the Fifth Circuit's order does not apply to them because they're not a party to the lawsuit. So what an Austin ISD spokesman told me was that the Travis County District Court's order upholding their mandate remains in effect and is pending on appeal to the Texas Third Court of Appeals. So that's in state court, not federal court, like this other case. And uh, Houston ISD made the same arguments generally. And for those of y'all who haven't been following this case that led to the injunction and then this order from the, the Fifth Circuit, a, a group called Disability Rights Texas sued the state on behalf of seven children with disabilities or fragile immune systems. And uh, the group claims that the, these children's conditions uh, render them, it, it makes, w without a mask mandate in place at their school, they are thus effectively barred from going to school. And so they're generally arguing that Governor Abbott's ban on school mask mandates inhibits their access to school. And so that's the case in federal court that led to the injunction and then this order from the Fifth Circuit. And so because these schools aren't a party to this lawsuit, they say that the Fifth Circuit's order does not apply to them. 
Got it. Now let's talk about San Antonio ISD for a second. What happened with that district's mask mandate? Well, I'm sure they weren't the only one because there's a little over a thousand school districts in Texas. And um, I want to say 50 to 70 to them are still requiring masks. But they were the only major school district I heard about that actually decided to end their mask mandate after the Fifth Circuit's order came out. So, you know, the day afterward, they said that they're going to end their mandate to comply with this order. But then six days afterward, um, they had done some analysis and determined in, in their reasoning that it did not apply to them because, you know, for the same reasons, X, Y, and Z, they, they weren't a party to the lawsuit. Um, they weren't involved. So they determined less than a week after the order that they were going to reinstitute their mask mandate. And um, anyway, so yeah, same legal reasoning, but it just took them a little bit longer to uh, align themselves with a lot of the other major school districts in the state. Yeah, for sure. Why is this district significant? Well, it's significant because they're actually the last school district in Barra County to keep requiring masks. Um, we published another piece different from this one a little while ago on the efficacy of masks according to government data. And something that we included in there was um, the DSHS has been measuring COVID trends in schools specifically. So we actually know statewide how many students and how many teachers have been testing positive. And those numbers fortunately have been trending down since September 5th. And so with that downward trend, a lot of school districts uh, combined with, in some cases, the threat of Paxton's lawsuits have been shedding their mask mandates. But San Antonio ISD is kind of the last holdout in Bear County. They've also been particularly aggressive with their COVID response. They were the first major school district in Texas to attempt to um, enforce a vaccine mandate for staff. And they're actually one day away from enforcing that before the state Supreme Court barred them from doing that. So, uh, but in general, they've, they've just had a particularly aggressive COVID strategy, even among other major school districts. Yeah, certainly. Well, Isaiah, thank you for following that for us. We appreciate it. Bradley, we're going to come back to you. You wrote another article on the federal COVID funding and it's attached strings. Talk to us about the story here. Yeah. So a month or two ago, uh, I wrote a story about the city of Brady rejecting their, uh, their COVID funding. And it was mainly due to this um, provision in the U.S. Treasury's Terms and Conditions document. Um, it reads, recipient agrees to comply with uh, all applicable federal statutes, regulations, and executive orders, and goes on a bunch of other uh, you know, legalese. But um, the reason this caused concern is that, um, you know, what about, uh, especially at that time, vaccine mandates from the federal government were um, something a lot of people were watching and hoping weren't implemented, um, hoping to avoid, especially for these smaller uh, localities. And so that was the local uh, side of this. But the state also, um, with SB8 during the uh, the special session, I think the, the most recent one, um, they uh, they approved COVID funding as well, and it. It is accompanied by the same exact terms and conditions. You know, it's the same same con basically contract that the state is entering with this federal government that these localities are for this funding. And so, one thing that kind of triggered this was um, uh, so the Texas Municipal League on a no November fifth advisory memo to its its members municipalities. Um, 
they had in there originally that the quote, the agreement does not create a contractual relationship between the non-entitlement recipient city and any department or division of the federal government. Now, somebody uh, questioned this and TML removed it. Um, if you go look at the, I have the link in the story. If you go look at it now, it's, it's not in there. Um, but I also linked to the screenshot of it. So, um, you know, that evidence is there as well, but, uh, that was removed and I reached out to TML. They didn't say anything back to me. They had no, um, no explanation for that and no ex, no additional legal guidance on, on this for their members. So, there's that. Um, but more to the point on the state funding, uh, when Governor Abbott signed SB8, he cited legal advice from the AG that said specifically it would not lead to VAX mandates in Texas. Now, obviously, executive orders um, and, and other s- similar types of, of uh, dictates from the federal government um those are not just limited to vax mandates, although vax mandates are kind of the, the topic at hand right now. But Governor Abbott in the legislative statement said that the AG assured him this would not lead to that uh, vax mandates in Texas. Um, there's The thing is, there's no record of an official AG opinion on the matter. Now, those opinions are not legally binding themselves, but it's a more formal uh, analysis of the law um, in order to give actual legal guidance to whomever it is that is seeking out this opinion. But he did put out a letter, the Attorney General did, that didn't take any position on the contract, the U.S. Treasury contract itself, but it does say that um, the governor's executive order banning private and public vaccine mandates uh, in Texas has the force and effect of law. And so, um, you know, they're kind of there's no real answer on this, whether this this one clause in this terms and conditions part of the contract has any effect whatsoever. Um, Now, you also have how much do this is a legal argument, how much do executive orders actually um, apply to uh, to everybody here, whether they're working for the government, a local government, or you know a contracting agency with the government. Um, we've seen that come up with vaccine mandates, um, or also the supremacy of a state order versus the federal order. And we've seen courts kind of hash that out a little bit uh, right now. All of the the federal vaccine mandates are. Um, have been struck down at least preliminarily by the various courts. But at Governor Abbott, he tweeted after the court struck down the final one um, temporarily. He said that uh, his executive order banning vaccine mandates is now effective. So that, uh, you know, that indicates that the, uh, until the court order struck down the, the federal government um, uh, executive order or policy that the it would overrule the states and so um you know there's a lot of questions that are being asked about this and very few answers being provided it just kind of seems like it's being uh pushed away and, and kind of ignored um you know the true implications of this uh, especially of this terms and condition and and um you know that terms and condition if a an entity, whether it's state or local government, agrees to take this this funding, and they are found to be in violation of whatever uh, policy the the contractor um, uh, sets, then they will have to pay back the funding. So, um, you know, that's something that is uh, that should be watched. And how much does that actually get? implemented how much how much is it actually triggered i don't know um but it is a hypothetical that it doesn't seem as being taken very seriously 
this is whole thing is so funny to me because you've got like Paxson's the chief legal officer of Texas. Abbott had that same position. He was a Supreme Court justice too. The Texas Municipal League, they employ people whose whole job is to pour through this code. Yeah. And to answer the question, like if we take this relief money, does that mean we have to do what the White House says? And all of these experts whose whole job it is is to answer questions like these are just kind of throwing up their hands. Yeah. Yeah, or pointing in another direction. I asked the Texas Department of Emergency Management because they're the ones that uh, basically oversee the funding, handing it out to these members. And, you know, they have legal counsel. There's no way they don't. And I asked them and they said they pointed the finger towards the AG. And, you know, I mean, not not entirely um, incorrectly either because the AG is the one that provides legal guidance in, in form of his opinions. But um, there's definitely discussion about this behind the scenes it's just, none of it's out there and and so these cities don't know what to do um and uh there's you know not much guide actual legal guidance out there on this on this issue yeah now let's talk about what this means for the state and local governments that do accept this funding yeah so uh we've already seen about 70 at least as of the writing of this article about 70 reject it now they're not very large cities, you know, the city of Brady is pretty small and most of the others have been, you know, in that category of, of, uh, you know, smaller localities. Um, but like I said, you know, if, if they are found to be in violation of the, um, of the terms of this, this contract, uh, if it is indeed enforceable, then, um, you know, they, they will have to pay back the money if that is, is what the federal government decides. And, you know, it's not like we have, um, uh, to a state government and a federal government that are on the same team here. Uh, they're, they're in opposition on most yeah. issues. So there's a lot of contention. And um, I think overall what this means is there is, there's a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of clarity. And um, these, these places are having to choose between uh, taking the money or protecting themselves from, a vague hypothetical that they aren't really sure if it is even enforceable or not. And so, uh, but it may be. And so um, I, I think a lot of consternation is really what this comes down to. And um, you know, the, the one, the people at, at the city of Brady that I spoke to, um, this was the, the big reason they rejected $1.3 million in, in coronavirus aid. And that was, you know, that's not a small amount of money for them. That's a very small city. And so that, uh, that could help, them defray the costs of a lot of things that they took on during during COVID. So uh, it's a tough decision in front of these places. Certainly. Well, thanks for breaking that down for us, Bradley. Isaiah, we're going to come to you. Let's talk again about another San Antonio school district, but um, this one caught the attention for a sheer the sheer volume of library books that the district temporarily pulled from their shelves. What's going on? Yeah, so this story comes from the Northeast Independent School District, which is actually my alma mater from the fifth grade. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's where my mom taught art. We didn't quite live there, but she taught there, so that's where I went. Anyway, they pulled 414 books or titles from their library shelves in order to cull what they would call a vulgar content. And I reached out to a spokeswoman for the district, and uh, she confirmed that it could be vulgar text or images. And um, it is a temporary action. They intend to, it's, it's review process is what she said. Um, they're not pulling them permanently and uh, they've already returned, I want to say a little bit more than a hundred to shelves. And um, she says that they anticipate the majority of the others will be returned as well. Uh, she also elaborated that this is a 
voluntary response to an investigation launched by state rep Matt Krause into books that he deemed to be potentially sexually explicit or racially charged. Got it. Now remind us of the background of Krause's investigation. So acting as head of the General Investigating Committee of the Texas House, State Rep. Matt Krause launched an investigation where he asked the TEA to get information from the school districts and charters in Texas on books that they have in their libraries. And specifically, he attached this 16-page list. I want to say there's something like 800 titles on the list. I don't quite know. 16 pages of book titles that uh, he suspects could be vulgar or racially charged. And uh, that was that was kind of the crux of his argument. And so he launched this investigation uh, with the hopes of learning from school districts how much they've spent on these books and how many of how many copies of each title they have. And uh, he did not ask districts to actually start this review themselves or pull them from their shelves or anything. So this is it's interesting that any ISD would do this since they weren't compelled to do it by the investigation. Yeah, certainly. The voluntary action is very interesting um, in all of this, too. And Holly Hansen has a piece that will be going up very soon, will be out by the time this podcast is out, about parents' response to this inquiry and how they're responding and taking matters into their own hands. So very interesting, Isaiah. Thank you for that coverage. Hayden, let's go back to the border. Um, let's talk about a, a, a big drug bust at the Brownsville port of entry, but specifically talk to us about what were the narcotics that these border agents seized and who were the suspects? There were multiple drug busts actually, and it totaled almost $700,000 worth of narcotics. And um, obviously that's a substantial street value. Uh, But there were a few different incidents that, that happened um, over the course of two days uh, the first one happened at Los Indias International Bridge. Um, a 42-year-old man was driving a 2009 Dodge vehicle. And what these press releases usually say is that they were flagged for secondary inspection. And then they use um, either canine units or non-intrusive imaging systems uh, or both to detect uh, illegal uh, contraband Um I guess that's an oxymoron, illegal contraband. Um, (laughs) But uh, in this first incident, which happened on Wednesday, uh, the first of this month, they found 24 pounds of alleged cocaine. Uh, It was separated into 10 different packages. um, And the suspects in all three of these cases were American citizens. Um, But uh, that was uh, confiscated. And then the other two occurrences uh, took place the next day. Um, at the Matamoros International Bridge, there was a 47-year-old male suspect who was stopped in a 2000 Ford vehicle, and he allegedly had 21 pounds of cocaine in nine different containers. The third incident was interesting uh, because the the suspect was considerably younger, but at the Gateway International Bridge, there was a 23-year-old woman who uh, is from Laguna Vista, and she was taken into custody for allegedly transporting 17 pounds of methamphetamine in 13 different packages. um, And she was driving a 2011 Dodge vehicle. She had the most expensive haul of narcotics, uh, totaling an estimated 334,000, well, to be precise, $333,776 was the estimate for the third. 
uh, incident. But altogether, uh, they were $681,596 in uh, estimated value. Um, and again, we talked about human, um, or we, we talked about illegal crossings by family units and unaccompanied minors earlier. Uh, but another big piece is the drug piece. And that's one of the reasons why drug cartels are so sophisticated is because it's a multi-billion dollar business. And um, there were 33,530 pounds of illegal illegal drugs seized in October, uh, according to the most recent CBP statistics. And uh, of course, that uh, much of that was meth and marijuana. Um, And then of course, there were still thousands of pounds of cocaine and fentanyl seized as well as heroin. Um, But that, um, of course, as we talked about earlier with the um, illegal crossings, that would only include the narcotics that were detected and seized. So that gives a little bit of a picture of how serious the drug problem is. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Hayden, for that. Daniel, let's move on here. Um, The U.S. House passed a version of an annual defense spending bill several months ago, but now a new version has been passed. What were some of the big differences between these two proposals? So the big thing that's different between these two proposals, um, or at least very notable, is that uh, the new provisions uh, in the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, that was kind of compromised between the House and the Senate uh, after some negotiations. Uh, now it's still pending in the Senate, so we'll see what goes on there. There might be some more changes to this. Uh, but the big controversial items that were taken out uh, included uh, some things like in adding women to the draft and also uh, a, quote, red flag program for military members, uh, which would essentially, through the military judicial system, um, would allow courts to basically confiscate uh, guns from military members. Um, those were two controversial pr- provisions that kind of uh, got some Republicans a little bit shy from voting for it, and they voted against it for those reasons, um, but they took those votes or they took those provisions out. Uh, and then Republicans were a little bit more open to voting for that. Uh, and there were a lot more Republicans who voted for the second version uh, than for the first one. Now, as far as the price of this uh, proposal, it's about the same price tag. It's going to be $778 billion, uh, which Oof. is uh, a pretty hefty sum for funding the military. It's actually $25 billion above what the president requested in his budget uh, to the to Congress when he makes his uh, congressional budget request. And uh, so that's that's kind of the overall big picture of the, the differences uh, between the two versions, the one that passed in September and then the one that passed uh, just this week. Got it. Now, what were some of the policies contained in the new version of the bill? Uh, so there were several different uh, policies that were contained in the new vision in the new pro- in the new proposal uh, that is now going to the Senate. Uh, some of the notable things it did talk about COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Uh, under the proposal, the NDAA that just passed the House, uh, the Secretary of Defense can still mandate uh, COVID-19 vaccines for military members. Um, now, he can also uh, list out what are the exemptions to those, uh, whether it be medical or religious exemptions uh, for that mandate. Uh, but the big difference here is that uh, it's no longer allowed for dishonorable discharge. Uh, so a military member who doesn't get an exemption granted uh, and is actually discharged from the military, it's now going to be, it has to be an honorable discharge or a general discharge under honorable conditions uh, if they're removed just for that uh, sole reason of uh, not having a vaccine. 
Um, and that would be effective. Uh, it would be backdated to, I think, August 24th, and then two years after the bill goes into a, into law. Uh, so those are the, the big differences with the COVID-19 uh, vaccine uh, that's still in the bill. Uh, so military vaccines still allowed, it just wouldn't be a uh, dishonorable discharge. Uh, now, as far as foreign policy, there's also some items uh, that are interesting in there. One of the big debates has been uh, with regard to Russia, especially since Russia has been building more forces around Ukraine. And uh, there has been talk about a Russian invasion in Ukraine coming sometime soon. There's also been uh, big talk about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is a pipeline run, running from uh, Russia to Germany. Uh, essentially, what that pipeline does geopolitically Germany wants that. Uh, a lot of other European countries would benefit from it as well, but Ukraine does not. Um, and Ukraine is kind of at the mercy of Russia in this situation. It also impacts Texas yeah. because Texas has um, had a lucrative operation of shipping over liquefied natural gas to these mm-hmm. European countries. Who And so you have, um, do they rely on Russia? Do they rely on mm-hmm. te- the U.S. and Texas heavily for their, their source of LNG? So Yeah. And for that reason, we've had several uh, members from Texas, especially Senator Ted Cruz and also uh, Representative Michael McCall uh, from the Austin, Houston area. Um, And he uh, and both of those members have really pushed for these economic sanctions on Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, uh, the people who are making this, the the companies that are involved in that construction. Um, President Biden actually removed those restrictions. And so now there's been a push to put these back into the bill Uh, that has not been put put into uh, the bill as it currently stands on Thursday afternoon when we're, when we're recording this podcast. Um, so we'll see what ultimately comes of that, but under the compromise that was re- released by the two house and Senate committees, uh, that is not in there. Uh, now other foreign policy things that are in there, it also, uh, requires the president to make a grand strategy with respect to China. Um, and then, uh, with regard to Afghanistan and the kind of botched withdrawal, uh, that the U.S. Uh, had earlier this year, uh, it, there is going to be a required report under the bill uh, that kind of dictates how successful the U.S. was in its mission over the past 20 years. Now, there's not a lot of focus on this uh, report with the actual withdrawal itself and the you know what went wrong there. There's some details, but it's not uh, to the extent that there had been uh, some amendments offered by Republicans to, to really get like a, a more in-depth look at the withdrawal itself. Uh, now, one exception to that, of course, uh, that's kind of notable, is that there would be uh, required an analysis of equipment that was left in Afghanistan, and then also, you know, what the U.S. is going to do, what the policy is going forward. Um, so, those are some interesting things that are in the bill. Yeah, certainly. Well, uh, talk to us about how Texas members voted on this bill. So, like I mentioned earlier, uh, because of the provisions, the controversial provisions that were removed out, uh, such as the red flag provision and also uh, the the women in the draft uh, provision, uh, there were a lot more Republicans who voted for the bill this time. Um, and so there were only actually four members from Texas who voted against the bill. Uh, two of them were Democrats, uh, Representative Lloyd Doggett and Al Green, uh, some progressives who were opposed to the bill for different reasons. And then you had uh, more two Republicans, uh, Representative Chip Roy and Louis Gohmert. Uh, so those two members also voted against the bill. Uh, Representative Roy actually released a statement that was a lot more detailed than the other members, kind of explaining why he voted against the bill. Uh, he said that he was grateful for a lot of the provisions that were removed and thanked the uh, Republican leadership who really pushed to, to remove that. And he was actually 
uh, one of the people who was pushing really hard to get the uh, women in the draft provision removed. And yeah. so uh, he said, uh, quote, I cannot and will not in good conscience rubber stamp an NDAA that is 2,100 pages long that I've had less than a day to review and that contains so many provisions unrelated or even contrary to our national defense. Our service members de- deserve better and so does the republic they defend. Uh, so that was his reasoning for voting against the bill. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Now talk to us about next steps. Where are we at? Where, where does this bill head to next? So the bill still needs to go to uh, the U.S. Senate and be approved there. Uh, there has been, you know, this was the text of this bill was released by both uh, the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee. Um, so this is seen as kind of a compromise in the final bill. Uh, but there are Republicans who are kind of using this as uh, leverage for different policies that they want to see uh, implemented, such as the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, sanctions or um, some other different stuff. There's also been some uh, concern about uh, the military military judicial system uh, by Democrats in the Senate. Uh, so it's not a done deal yet, but it is going to the Senate. Uh, it could be approved uh, sometime soon, and uh, we're kind of keeping an eye on that. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, Daniel, thank you. Let's continue on with you. Let's cover a story that our reporter Holly Hansen wrote this week after she went to a campaign event featuring Representative Dan Crenshaw, as well as candidates Wesley Hunt and Morgan Luttrell. Um, But the big story really that came out of that event was what Crenshaw said regarding his votes for funding a vaccine database system and military spending. But what exactly was it that he said that made headlines? And so one of the things that he talked about uh, at this event uh, he, he kind of took some shots at some other members uh, in the in the, in Congress and different people in the Republican conservative movement. Uh, he said, "quote We have grifters in our midst, uh, not here in this room. I mean, in the conservative movement." Um, and so he was really pushing back on the accusations that were made against him for voting for this uh, legislation HR five fifty. Um, and you know, people are saying, "Oh, he just he wants to create a, a federal vaccine database system." And he said, uh, quote, unfortunately, many Republicans are m- many Republicans you trust are lying to you. They want you to believe that they stood strong against a, quote, new vaccine database, but they're lying. There's no new database. Uh, he said, we just made current databases secure against federal government tracking. Um, so his argument was uh, essentially that this is a legislation that was actually included in one of the uh, covid relief bills that was passed earlier this year by Democrats. Um, that no Republican actually voted for. Um, and so he's saying that this is this bill is kind of revising something that was already done in that legislation uh, and working really with uh, state um, immunization record systems. And so he was saying, uh, he says, quote, it is explicitly designed to improve data security and privacy protection. Republicans were rightly worried, worried about this which is why H.R. 550 was crafted with clear privacy safeguards to correct it. Uh, We didn't want authoritarian blue state governors transmitting personal vaccination information to the CDC or have a hacker steal personal vaccine data. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what's actually in this bill and, you know, Crenshaw alleging that grifters are criticizing it for reasons that aren't legitimate. But talk to us about what these critics have said about the bill, what these arguments are. Yes. So the critics of the bill point to a specific part of the language in it and also something that the uh, bill author has also emphasized, 
uh, which the bill says, quote, or, or the bill says that the bill authorizes grants to improve, quote, the secure bidirectional exchange of immunization record data among federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial governmental entities and non-government entities. And uh, the bill author, Ann Custer, from New Hampshire, uh, stated in a press release that the bill would actually enhance the security of bidirectional exchange uh, and also said that the systems could be used to, uh, quote, remind patients when they are due for a recommended vaccine. Um, so essentially, uh, the arguments against this bill is, is that it does kind of centralize uh, these different state systems that are already existing. Uh, Texas does have a system like this where, you know, if you go to get uh, a COVID-19 shot, the doctor is required to put your data into a system that keeps track of that. Uh, now there's some privacy measures put in place to, to try and safeguard that. But these systems are something that exist. Uh, and so uh, people are concerned that this legislation would, uh, by really emphasizing the quote, bi-directional exchange uh, between different entities, would kind of centralize that in, in a way that could be used uh, harmfully. Yeah. Certainly. Now, he also, and we're running out of time here, but very quickly, um, he also brought up a, a vote that we talked about earlier today, correct? Yes. Uh, so in regards to the NDAA, the, the defense spending bill, uh, like I mentioned, there was a red flag provision in that. Uh, now, Crenshaw had actually voted for the first version of this, which did include that red flag provision and also the uh, women in the draft uh, provision. And he said, uh, quote, the truth was the, the truth was that the the truth was that was not the final bill, and there was already a deal that there would be no such provisions in the final bill. We were actually voting on the final bill this week, and guess what? No red flag laws in there. And he said, uh, again, he's calling uh, some people grifters, uh, specifically calling out the Governors of America, who pushed back against the NDAA and the red flag provision in there, saying that they were just trying to fundraise uh, money with pushing back against this. Um, now, the Republicans didn't actually need to uh, vote on the first bill in order for it to pass. The Democrats are a majority in the House. Um, but Crenshaw went ahead and voted in favor of the NDAA that had those provisions in there anyway. And his argument was that it's not the final bill. It was not the final bill, in, in fact, and that there was going to be uh, certainly some disagreements in the Senate about the provisions in there. Uh, but the bill that he did vote on did include those provisions. Um, and notably, he had also suggested and previously uh, that states should consider implementing red flag laws. Uh, after the shootings in 2019, he tweeted out a thread uh, kind of saying that we do need to work on solutions uh, for kind of uh, curbing gun violence, saying, quote, the solutions aren't obvious, even if we pretend they are, but we must try. Let's start with the TAPS Act, maybe also implement state red flag laws or give or gun violence restraining orders. Stop them before they can hurt anyone. So yeah. uh, that's just his position on red flag laws. He didn't vote. He did. He voted for in favor of it uh, in the NDAA, uh, but he said that he only did that because he knew it would be taken out. Got it. Well, uh, a lot of controversy uh, with all those comments. Thanks for breaking that down for us. And Holly Hansen, our Houston reporter, Harris County area. Thank you for attending that and writing such an incredible piece on that. Boys, let's move on to a fun topic. It is Christmas time. In case you were unaware, I want to make sure you are aware that it is officially Christmas time and none of y'all can give me heck about it. No, so, no one told me that, that it was Christmas time. I'm oh, shocked. Oh, Hayden, I'm so sorry. I personally have dropped the ball, so I apologize <laughs> for that. 
That's okay. I wow. forgive you. Nothing. Okay. There you go. Isaiah but, is sticking his foot out into the air wearing some Christmas socks. Isaiah, I'm so proud of you. Are they Santa? Are they Christmas tree? Are they uh, little manger? What do we have? They're snowmen. Snowmen. That is awesome. I specifically well, I'm wore very proud. regular shoes today instead of boots to, to show these snowmen. And see that that's important because it's unlikely or or a low probability that we will be building a snowman in Texas anytime soon. So I mean, it knock could on snow. wood right now, Hayden. <laughs> but and if knock we do, it'll be like once wood. or twice, maybe even in late January or something. It'll so be like two feet tall. Yeah, and it'll melt in three hours. So we have to do things like s- snowman socks to make up for it. <laughs> I mean, I do have pictures of snowmen in front of the Texas Capitol, so it could happen. I it proof. could. Hopefully, I mean, that's pretty crossing cool. Crossing our fingers. Um. Okay, but the question for today, what is the best city to be in at Christmas time or just a city you want to visit at Christmas? I think cities can take on a whole new life um, at Christmas time. The decorations, the weather, whatever it might be, kind of can change it. So what city is the best to be in at Christmas time or what cities you want to visit? Well, I always enjoyed be a bit of a homer here and uh, pick Cincinnati. Um it's uh first of all it actually has snow there so you know that's a big that's a benefit that's delightful. Yeah. um <laughs> but we would always go to the uh, christmas lights at the zoo which was only like a quarter of a mile away from where i lived from ca- on campus and uh uh notably you know the zoo at the site of the, yes. the horrendous murder of um uh harambe uh oh, may he rest in was, peace oh lord but um yes i was i was a short bit away from that when when that awful murder occurred you but anyway round zero so uh going to the the light see the lights there that's always fun we did that when i was a kid too only up at the toledo zoo so um i guess any place that has a zoo that puts lights up i will <laughs> i will uh add to my list there but um uh, Cincinnati is also a heavily German town, and so they have a lot of German Christmas traditions that are fun, much of which include beer. So, <laughs> a, a favorite of yours, yes, personally. Yes. I love it. What else, gentlemen? Well, um, outside of Robert Lee, where my grandparents live, there, I mean, the, the land is still there, obviously. I don't know if the same owner has it, but there used to be every Christmas or December, I guess they'd, they'd set up this big, like Christmas village looking thing out of lights. And it wasn't any of the physical plastic displays. It was all shaped like drawn out with Christmas lights, but there was a nativity scene and stars and trees and everything. And, uh, that was always really cool to drive by at night. We'd visit the grandparents and it was right across from our field. And, um, so that was cool. And in Robert Lee and Bront when they hang up, I guess there are a lot of towns that do this, but like the candy canes or Holly, light decorations, whatever, on every street light. But if I had, it had to be like an actual city city. Um, I feel like one of those European cities like Moscow, that'd be cool. Or, um, does Moscow count as a European city? It's on our side of the, uh, the Euro mountains, right? Is it? Okay. I don't know. I'm not looking Russia at it. Considered Asia. Was I wrong about that? Well, there's a chunk of it where most of them live that's on the European continent air quotes. And then the big swath of it where not so many people live in Asia where Napoleon tried to invade. Oh really? I don't know. 
No. Where I <laughs> beat Daniel it was probably the with the population we centers. I could just, you know, if if a whole army is going to freeze to death, you'd think it'd be the uh, the eastern portion of Russia, but the western portion is pretty cold too. Yeah. Well, I just want to so see those big onion towers. Russia is primarily in Asia too. It's so easy for me to forget that. Fell for one of the classic blunders. <laughs> Never get involved. <laughs> Well, that's why I asked. I was like, I want to make sure that we know what we're talking about here. Um, that would be cool. Moscow would be cool. Are there any other European cities that you would uh, loop in with that, say? Well, I don't know their names, but they have big towers. Like Paris? No. <laughs> no, I'm imagining um, like cathedrals, I guess. That's what I'm thinking of. They probably got one. Yeah, they do have a big one in Paris. How could I forget? Wait, no, no, they don't. Just stop <laughs> listening to me talk. I don't know anything about geography. <laughs> I don't know. A big Hayden? Uh, what do you have? No, Isaiah, please continue. Didn't they have one that caught on fire? Yeah. In Notre France. Dame. Yeah. Are we talking about the cathedral in Paris? Yeah. Yeah. Notre Dame. What? That was heartbreaking. Did the hunchback die in it? Brad, you are so <laughs> lava poured out of the grip, uh, goblin's mouths or gargoyles' mouths. Yeah, <laughs> makes me so sad. Um, Paris would be up there. I've been to Paris, never been there at Christmas, but that would be a really fun city to visit. Hayden, you should just take this away. Why me? You're you're always because like- I trust you to save these kinds of conversations. <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm considering visiting this place you you might have heard of it you might have not but um I, th- I think seattle might be a fun place to visit should i visit seattle mckenzie during christmas time you know i really think you should seattle is a wonderful place to visit at christmas time do they decorate I'm biased, well certainly but it really is lovely i've been to spokane around christmas time but not seattle i haven't been to the western part of washington only the eastern part Okay. The eastern part is really fascinating. And Spokane's a cool town in a lot of ways, but Seattle is much cooler in that regard. I wish you'd been able to visit it like five years ago. It was totally different then, but it still is a great town to visit. I I like that very much. I'll I, I hope the weather's good for you. It can it can it can get a little too rainy up there for a lot of people's taste. Spokane Why are you pronouncing it wrong? Out. It's Spokane. Who? What are you saying? You were pronouncing it wrong. It's not Spokane. It's Spokane. Everyone knows that. Oh my gosh. Unreal. Um, Especially Daniel, the what guy about you? From, from Texas or from the Dallas area who is nowhere, who is from nowhere near Spoke. Spo- how, how do you keep saying it? Spokane. Spokane. That's not no, what you said a second it's ago. It's Spokane, Hayden. You had it exactly right. You're, you're just right. coming up with different just, ways to mispronounce it now. Spokane. He's just messing with you. So, Daniel, tell us tell us what cities you would want to visit. Well, I would not say uh, Spokane or Spokane or Spokane <laughs> or any of those. Uh, one of the towns that I would like to visit again, and I don't think I've been there around Christmas time. I've been there in the, in the fall, but not at Christmas time, uh, is Branson, Missouri, which really <laughs> it, it is a random town. It's a basically if you think about going to Disney World, um, except it's like too expensive to go to Disney world. So all these families from the Midwest or I guess Brad wouldn't say the Midwest, but you know, Arkansas, Oklahoma, even people from Texas. 
You know what, Brad? <laughs> go away. We've had this debate. Maybe this should be our fun topic next time. Uh, anyways, that's like their Disney World. Uh, they've got Silver Dollar City there, which they go all out with Christmas decorations and with the Christmas lights and trees and Christmas singing and just the whole the whole shebang. So that'd be fun to go to. That's awesome. That sounds incredibly fun. And what about you? I'd say my my top city to go visit would be New York. I've never been to New York and visiting it at Christmas time is on my bucket list. I would just love to do the whole cliche ice skating, Christmas tree, uh, all that would just be on the top of my list. Do basically do all the things Elf does in the movie, Buddy the Elf does in the movie. <laughs> that would be my dream. Um, and then another city, I'm actually going to Nashville this weekend and it'll be really fun to see Nashville at Christmas time. So I'm excited for that. Um, yeah. And Paris or London would be cool to go internationally, but those are both pretty cliche choices as well. But regardless, I'd love to see them. Um, cool. But gentlemen, any final thoughts, any final words for our listeners, things to add? Not one. Other than wow. Merry Christmas, I guess. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Is Are you guys one. still there? It's too early to say Merry Christmas, though, because we're going to have a couple more before Christmas. Yeah, but you can say Merry Christmas now. It's December. Matt's oh, been literally saying Merry Christmas all okay. year. So oh. I'm just going to, you can wait till like our last podcast before Christmas to say to all a good night. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So in the meantime, mm-hmm. Merry Christmas. That's right. Yeah. She get disconnected again. I think she got disconnected. Her last words were, are y'all still there? Yeah. <laughs> we're still here. She's not. We could just end with Brad saying Merry Christmas. Yeah. Slowly fade in some jingly music. I think it's good idea. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Are you guys still there? Okay. Well, awesome. Um, folks, thank you so much for listening. We uh, so enjoy recording these podcasts for you. Thanks for tuning in and making it worth our while. We will catch you next week and Merry Christmas. Thank you all so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our podcast, it would be awesome if you would review us on iTunes. And if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show, give us a shout on Twitter. Tweet at the Texan News. We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas.